A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us this Thursday for a special Animal Spirits edition of the programme. The Nasdaq on a fresh bull market tear. As CPI eases consumers' despair, peak price predictions too soon to dare. Federate hike hawks say we still must beware. And as for the streaming tortoise and hare, the Disney Plus mouse roars, overtaking Netflix with sparkle and flair. And on Wall Street, far from a Thursday scare. In fact, take a look at this. US stocks look set to build on the strong gains over the previous session, fueled by that softer than expected print on US consumer inflation. Dow futures higher too, thanks to a bumper 8% plus pre-market rally for Disney. We'll be discussing all the details in their results very shortly. Now for now, after Wednesday's rally, the Nasdaq back in bull market territory after retracing a more than 20% of its losses since March. Encouraging new inflation data just released too. Context is key. Prices at the factory gate rising at an annual rate of 9.8% year over year. That was, however, softer than the more than 11% rate hit in June. Producer prices actually falling a half a percent month over month too. Another positive sign. The same factors helping ease consumer concerns all at play here, namely falling energy prices. Brent and U.S. crude down some 20 percent since the month of June and average U.S. petrol prices now below four dollars a gallon, tumbling 21 percent over the past three months. Other commodities also seeing a summer pullback, too. The United Nations says its global food commodity index fell for the fourth straight month in July, with cereal prices down more than 10 percent and the cost of vegetable oil down almost 20 percent. Some of the improvement due to the resumption of Ukraine wheat exports over the past few weeks, easing those broader fears. Christine Romans joins us now on this. I said this yesterday, Christine, and great to have you with us. And I'll say it again. It's not normal to be happy when an inflation rate (laughs) is so extremely high, but the news is it could have been higher. There's nothing normal. I I said this yesterday, too. I said when eight and a half percent is a good thing on inflation, just like now when nine point eight percent of the factory floor is a good thing. You know, the trend is your friend. So we want to see them putting uh, prints like this uh, back to back. But when I look at the trends, I can see now a peak on the chart, you know, for, for factory inflation. You can see it much better than you can for, uh, for consumer price inflation. But um, that factory, and, and this is all driven by mostly, the government pointed out, like 80% driven by uh, fuel costs. You know, the fuel costs went down substantially um, in the month. And you'd like to see that continue. Gas price experts tell me another 10 to 30 cents maybe for gasoline prices in, in the U.S., presuming there isn't some terrible hurricane season or some kind of unforeseen event. Gee, have we had unforeseen events over the past three years? Yes, we have. So you can see why people are a little bit nervous. But the inflation picture, at least now, a couple of, couple of reports in a row showing us the inflation, the runaway inflation may have peaked. That's what, the, that's what the story is. And that's how the traders are taking it today. Yeah, investors are reacting to that. And I'm very nervous in light of everything you just said. And as always, I completely agree um, <laughs> of looking at history in terms of the reaction for investors, because typically we see a flaw in stock markets when investors see the signals from the Federal Reserve that peak rates. We've hit peak interest rate hikes. And that normally means that a bottom or a floor in the stock market. Here, what we're seeing is peak and inflation and perhaps reacting accordingly. The question is, and we know this, the Fed still has a lot of work to do. And we're seeing this with the level of prices that we're seeing. Too early to be predicting a bottom in stocks? 
Yeah, well, I mean, look, I mean, that is that is a big risk. Also, let's be honest, stock market investors tend to overreact, don't they? Mm-hmm. And there'll be another piece of information, maybe some, you know, shorter term economic data that'll spook them next week. Who knows for sure? But what we do know right now that inflation has been the number one concern for so long that when you see gas prices below $4 a gallon in the U.S. and and, and 18 states below $3.75 a gallon, I know in much of the world um, that sounds impossibly cheap because they pay so much more than than consumers in the U.S. do anyway. Uh, But that is a real relief for American consumers. And it seems as though what traders are telling us is after a couple of really three now really important economic reports the last week's uh, jobs report and these two inflation reads that they're starting to feel like, um, you, you know, there is a path for a soft landing in the U.S. economy. or Maybe they see a, a, a more of a path for a soft landing than they did just a couple of weeks ago. But you're right. The Fed still has a lot of work left to do, Julia. And that September meeting is right around the corner. Yeah, you're right. The probability, at least it seems, of a, a softer landing feels higher after these last few yeah. reports. Um, but, but the risk nothing remains. Is guaranteed. Nothing yeah. is guaranteed, yeah. you know? Yeah. Christine Rames, thank you so much. You're as welcome. always. SoftBank selling a chunk of its stake in Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba worth a cool $44 billion. The cash will help SoftBank ride out what it calls a severe market environment. It comes off reported record losses on its tech bets this year. Paula Monica joins me now. I tell you what, this has to be one of the best investments in, in financial market history. 20 years ago, uh, SoftBank invested what, $20 million in this pre-IPO, and now they're selling just a chunk of it for billions of dollars. But they could have done better. Yeah, they obviously could have done better, Julia, if they had sold a little earlier, because as we know, Alibaba has been facing a lot of pressure Concerns, of course, about what's happening in the global economy with inflation, what that means for consumer spending, of course, the pandemic before that. And the biggest issue, perhaps, is that there's been this intense crackdown from Beijing on Chinese tech companies. And Jack Ma knows that uh, you know, very well, unfortunately, and that has hurt Alibaba and by extension SoftBank. So SoftBank, remember, in their vision fund, they lost what I believe about 50 billion on paper in the first uh, you know half of this year. So it makes sense that SoftBank needs to shore up some cash because of these gigantic losses. And actually, let's be clear about this as well. Jeffries was saying back in February that they're going to need, SoftBank's going to have to sell this stake. 40 to $45 billion of cash is going to be needed this year to sustain its startup investment pace and a program to buy back up to $7.5 billion of its shares. So at least there was some warning for investors too. But we should also talk about what we've seen from SoftBank as well. And they have been monetizing their stake in Alibaba for many years. They've been selling options in order to uh, finance themselves from it. And they still own, even after this sale, 14.6%. Do we think this is the start of a progression of selling down the underlying here rather than just being able to monetize the stake itself? Yeah, it's a great question, Julia. I, I don't get the sense that SoftBank wants to entirely exit it's Alibaba's stake, but mm. it wouldn't shock me if they did wind it down further if the company needs more cash, which you know does seem likely unless this market rally that uh, started in uh, July and seems to be continuing so far in August really takes steam and we uh, you know have more evidence that the big bear market for tech in particular 
might be finally behind us. But keep in mind, again, SoftBank not just trimming its stake in Alibaba. They've done this also with its stake in Uber. There are a lot of, quote unquote, crown jewels that you would have thought uh, SoftBank wouldn't have really wanted to cut its position in, but they are being forced to do so because they simply need the cash. Yeah. From $21 million 20 years ago to a chunk of it here at $34 billion crystallized and plenty more, I'm assuming, in the interim, too. And more left to go. Not a bad investment, despite some challenges um, over the period for Masayoshi-san. Paul, great to have you with us. Paul and Monica there. Okay, let's move on. COVID conquered. At least that's what North Korea is claiming as it declares a victory over the virus. And it's blaming Seoul for the outbreak. Paula Hancock has more. North Korea says it's achieved in 91 days what the rest of the world has not managed in two and a half years, eradicating COVID-19. The difficult war against the disease is now over, and today we are finally declaring the victory. Maskless and shaking hands, Kim Jong-un congratulates the officials. He says beat the virus. Kim says they still need to keep a steel-strong anti-epidemic barrier until the health crisis ends for the rest of the world. His sister and high official Kim Yo-jong said Kim himself had a very high fever. A statement met with visible emotion from the audience. A consistent message that the leader has been suffering alongside his people. Pyongyang officially reported 4.77 million so-called fever cases up until July 29th. Actual COVID testing is scarce and just 74 deaths out of a population of 25 million, numbers widely questioned. I think we need to see North Korea's COVID outbreak as not only a public health matter, but also a political matter. Um, The beginning of the outbreak did not signal North Korea's first COVID case. And the end of the outbreak being announced does not mean that they've got rid of COVID either. Uh, It just means that this was a time when they needed to shift onto something else and to make use of the outbreak for political purposes. Kim Yo-jong also called for deadly retaliation against South Korea, which she claims intentionally sent the virus across the DMZ via anti-North Korea propaganda balloons, saying if it happens again, the North will wipe out the South Korean authorities. This national crisis that we suffered was clearly brought about by the hysterical farce by the enemy, using the global health pandemic to escalate the confrontation with our nation. South Korea's unification ministry calling the accusations groundless and the comments disrespectful and threatening. This declaration of victory is being seen by some North Korean watchers as a message of hope and unity for a struggling domestic audience. It could also potentially be a message for neighbouring China that North Korea is ready to lift restrictions to open borders and, crucially, to allow desperately needed food into the country. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. And on the Chinese island of Hainan, the battle for zero COVID goes on as a lockdown in the holiday resort of Sanya continues into its sixth day. Tens of thousands of visitors are trapped, unsure when they'll be allowed to leave. CNN's Chrissy Lustout reports. It's China's tropical island paradise, Hainan. Known for its sandy beaches and extravagant resorts, a coveted destination for Chinese travelers like Li Zifang, an engineer from Shanghai. I chose to come to Sanya because the COVID restrictions are more relaxed than in Shanghai. 
But for Lee and some 80,000 tourists, their island getaway turned into a nightmare. Officials hastily imposed a lockdown in the resort city of Sanya to curb a COVID-19 outbreak. From Saturday, public transport was suspended, people's movements restricted, and tourists were required to stay for seven days and clear five COVID-19 tests before leaving. Sudden flight cancellations led to chaos at the airport. In this widely circulated video, a local official tries in vain to placate dozens of frustrated travelers. He says the government will assist with room and board, but it's not enough. We want to go home, they say. In heavy rain, residents and visitors queue for mandatory COVID tests. Oh my God, look how big the queue is. Oh my God. What is going on? To the back of the queue, to the back of the queue. And across China, a number of domestic tourist hotspots have been struck by zero COVID lockdowns. Last month, more than 2,000 tourists were trapped in the resort town of Beihai. Meanwhile, cases are rising in Xinjiang and even Tibet, which had been COVID-free for almost three years. With overseas travel still banned and domestic tourist destinations struck by the virus, the summer has ended early for many Chinese vacation goers. The first batch of stranded tourists have started to leave Hainan, and Li is still waiting for his trip home. You endured the lockdown in Shanghai. You're now under lockdown in Sanya. How do you cope? For someone who has endured a three-month lockdown in Shanghai, I am keeping a steady peace of mind because this is a kind of natural disaster. It's out of our control. Lee says because he's in a high-risk zone with confirmed cases, he must stay put for another week or so. Under lockdown yet again, but this time with an ocean view. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. New satellite images show at least seven aircraft were destroyed following explosions at a Russian airbase in occupied Crimea earlier this week. Four blast craters can be seen, as well as burn marks and scarred vegetation. Ukraine isn't confirming if it was behind the blasts. The cause is still unknown. And it's been nearly one year since the United States pulled out of Afghanistan. Remember the scenes of Kabul falling to the Taliban, Afghans desperate to leave with the last coalition troops, and the president fleeing the country. CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, has gone back and reports. I think you can probably see behind me, we're at a market. There is a sense of normalcy on the streets of the city. Um, There is not the same sort of or anything approaching the levels of chaos and violence that we saw playing out during those heart-wrenching scenes last year. But the the change has also brought about a real decrease in the standard of living here. And a lot of people are now fighting to put food on the table. The UN says that nearly half the country is in a state of acute hunger. Uh, The International Rescue Committee says by the second half of this year, they believe, well, we are now in that second half of this year, more than 90 percent of people will be living below the poverty line. And that's for a whole plethora of reasons, partly because of sanctions and the freezing uh, of Afghanistan's federal reserves after the Taliban took power, partly because of the food crisis, partly because of inflation. But what you see when you go around, and and I just want to show you a little bit, seeing as we're here in this market, you can see there is food. There is food that you can buy. The market stalls are full. But the conversations that we've been having with vendors make it clear that for the vast majority of people, 
it's become unaffordable, this food. So flour, uh, I was told by these vendors, has doubled in price. Cooking oil, which is obviously uh, one of the basic necessities, has more than doubled in price. And that's not even before you start talking about the very real changes and the impact that they've had as the Taliban has gradually become firmer in implementing its vision or version of Sharia law. Former President Donald Trump declined to answer questions in a scheduled deposition on Wednesday. It was part of the New York Attorney General's three-year investigation into whether the Trump organization used false financial statements to mislead banks, insurers and tax authorities. The Trump team denies any wrongdoing. And another heat wave has hit parts of Europe, from the UK and the Netherlands to Spain and France. Officials say 63 percent of the land across the EU and UK combined is under drought warnings or alerts. Those conditions are helping fuel scenes like this. Wildfires across southwestern France have charred thousands of hectares of land. OK, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but straight ahead, the Disney magic continues. No streaming slowdown for Disney Plus, at least for now. Plus. You should have been receiving a war widow's pension. Comes quite a tidy sum. Who is my Eddie? It's a sign from my angel. What are you going to do? I'm going to buy a dress. A Christian Dior from Paris. Feel very good movie. Mrs. Harris goes to Paris, taking on the Titans at the box office. How the film is stealing the show and what the future of filming King looks like. With the film's director. All coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and a magical moment for Disney. It's quarterly revenue jumping 26% from a year ago, net profit up 53%. Disney Plus added more than 14 million customers, raising its total subscriptions to 252 million. That was way better than expected. Combined with Hulu and ESPN Plus, Disney now has 221 million subscribers, surpassing Netflix total for the first time. And that's not all. Visitors are also packing its theme parks, boosting sales by 70 percent from a year ago. Joining us now is Tim Nolan. He is media analyst at Macquarie. Tim, great to have you with us. I'm as bamboozled by all the numbers there, as I'm sure my viewers are as well. But this was overall, I think, great news for Disney, great news from Disney Plus specifically, and actually great news for all of those that are involved in streaming. We don't seem to have hit peak yet. Streaming has a long way to go still. Now, Disney has some great advantages. I mean, they've only recently entered a number of new markets, and uh, they have a lot of content coming out, uh, you know, starting this quarter into next quarter. So it's a nice setup for some growth in streaming subscribers. As you mentioned, they've surpassed Netflix now uh, in terms of total subscribers. Disney Plus is at uh, 152 million now globally, added 14 and a half million uh, globally from last quarter uh, in this quarter just announced. So it's it's a very strong result, and I think it's the speaks to the Disney brand and to the uh, the interest in the content that they have, as well as the fact they are still expanding internationally. Yeah, you made a great point there. And I think we saw Disney launch Disney Plus in what, 42 new countries, 11 territories, just in June alone, to, to make your point about the expansion that we're seeing, even in the, the short to medium term. What about pricing here? Because it's not just about acquiring subscribers. It's about being smart about how you acquire those and how best you monetize them. And we did see them changing up, read, increasing the cost for those without uh, adverts 
if you want to view without adverts, but also perhaps pushing people more towards bundles, making that opportunity. So having ESPN, Hulu and Disney Plus as part of a package, better value. Yes, that's been part of their strategy for some time now is offering that bundle. Um, it works out to a much better um, you know, financial package for consumers. Um, interesting new news last night was the announcement of the timing of the launch of the ad-supported tier, so December 8th in the U.S. Um, and along with that, we got the pricing. So essentially, if you're getting um, Disney Plus ad-free for $8 a month now, as of December 8th, you can get that uh, same uh, ad-free package for now $3 more. So uh, Disney Plus straight standalone, $3 more, that's $11. Um, or you can keep that $8 price point but accept the version with ads. So uh, as they you know, put it, it's offering choice to the consumers. What it means for Disney, of course, is an opportunity to really make more money off of the, uh, the advertising revenues they can gain from that service. It'll be very interesting to observe what happens over time with uh, consumers choosing to keep the ad free at a higher price or opt to the uh, lower price option, which actually for Disney could work out to be even more profitable uh, given the value of the ads that they can sell. Mm. Can you pair contrast with what we're seeing from Netflix, who they're also talking about this ad subscription model. So it's a direction that a lot of these guys are, are heading in more and more. In terms of subscriber growth, we know Netflix reported a loss of, what, 1 million net subscribers in the, in the previous quarter and forecast a gain of just 1 million um, for the third quarter. But I do know that their share price has risen, what, 20 percent since we got those results. So there's almost like, OK, we really did sell this stock on the, on the bad news, but hey, perhaps we're being a little harsh. I'm showing the comparison there, which actually is also interesting, too. Yeah, well, Netflix stock sold off, I, I forget, 75% or something mm. from its peak. Uh, so to recover some of that, of course, is welcome. Um, but remember, Netflix um, has been in the business of streaming for many, many years. Uh, Disney is many years behind Netflix. Um, and so it, for Netflix, it's a case of, you know, reaching maturity, frankly, in the U.S. and Canada. Um, and there still is opportunity in other countries, but um, they just are that much further along the path than, than Disney. And that is why Netflix has launched, uh, it has announced it's going to launch this ad-supported uh, tier as well. Same argument. It's uh, an opportunity to uh, give consumers a lower price to encourage them to not drop the service or to add on the service. Um, and for the seller, in this case Netflix, there's an opportunity to make good money from those ads. Uh, Netflix is a little behind Disney in the, in the launch of the ad-supported uh, tier. That might not be until the spring. Uh, whereas Disney is going to be now in December. Um, but the logic is very much the same. Um, um, it's, it's a very competitive market for streaming. Remember, Netflix had almost no competition in the beginning, you know, 10 years ago. Now everybody has their own streaming service. Disney has a lot of content. Lots of other players out there have lots of content on their streaming services. So Netflix is um, reaching for other tools in the bag to try to attract more subscribers. Yeah, and we'll see how it goes. And just to remind our viewers, you've got an outperform on Disney, a price target of $135, and underperform on Netflix, target $170. Tim, always great to have your, uh, you on the show and get your wisdom. Thank you for that. Tim Nolan there, Thank you. media analyst at Macquarie. Okay, up next, Disney may be putting up prices, but our next guest is generating buzz for trying to take costs down. The CEO of stock trading app Lightyear on his bid to take business to infinity and beyond. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. From meme stock mania to Robin Hood's crypto
crypto crash. Retail traders are now a key player in the U.S. stock markets, but Europe hasn't seen the same size of pandemic boom. Stock exchange Euronext estimated that just 5% of trades were made by retail traders in 2021, compared to almost 25% in the United States. Well, now UK-based stock trading app Lightyear is aiming to change that. They say they offer easy, fast and free trading accounts to small investors. In July, it launched in 19 European countries. Here to explain is Martin Sock. He's the CEO of Lightyear. Martin, fantastic to have you with us. OK, I've seen you compared to Robinhood in the United States. You can say why or why not, but just give us the vision. How do you think you can get more retail traders across Europe? I think like UK and US and European markets are quite different from each other. Like mm. US has seen quite a strong transition from um, like uh, banking based to the online based to the kind of commission free trading and like retail uh, people have like really benefited from that. In, and now if you're coming into Europe, this hasn't happened. So most of the people are still making their investments through the bank. It's incredibly complicated. There's not good access. There's a lot of barriers, a lot of hidden fees. So. This technically just hasn't been there yet. So yeah, we're here to change that. It comes down to how pension funds work as well, and they're very different in the United States too. So it's in, in many ways about educating people about the resources that are out there. Um, you offer an array of global stocks on the platform. And in terms of fees, you say it's free to the customer, but you only charge for, for currency conversion and it's a flat rate. So just explain how that works. So... I think it comes down to the, how the Europe really works. So in Europe, you're in this weird position that most people have wrong currency. So if you think about how people are investing, then half of the money goes to the US and half of the money goes into the European markets. It means that people need to convert money constantly. So in Europe, it kind of makes sense to actually charge the conversion fee. So if you're looking into where the, uh, like how cheap it is to actually execute the trades and so on, so it makes sense to remove that fee and charge for the uh, ancillary service for FX. And on any transaction or on uh, over above a certain size? No, we're actually building it in a way that everybody who joins the platform gets uh, currently three different accounts. So they get a dollar account, euro account, pound account. So they can top up in any of these currencies and they can convert between these currencies. So now, for example, when I'm, uh, I'm currently in the UK, so I can top up in my pounds, convert that into dollars and buy US stocks and sell US stocks and keep my dollars. I don't need to convert back and forth constantly. So I think that's one of the core elements in Europe because like the currency conversion is so kind of prominent everywhere. They like, want to give the best possible opportunity for people to actually save money on that as well. It makes sense. If I'm investing purely in European stocks and I already own euros, though, does that mean I pay absolutely no fees at all? Yeah, we are like building a premium mm -hmm. model. It means that like if you want to get started, like uh, like just in a European uh, instruments, then fine, you can do that for free. Um, but we are also building a premium account. So for people who want to have a little bit better experience, like more data, more information, uh, or they want to have a, a kind of better under, understanding of the market, the risks, then this is, you can use our product to actually get that better understanding. There's also kind of learning and lessons like how to get a better investor. Aha. And that's the key. So we are moving to a subscription model because I was like, otherwise, the economics of this simply don't work. Do you have any sense of what proportion of people that are using the platform will actually sign up for that subscription? And can you give us any sense of what it's going to cost just on a, on a monthly basis? Are we at that point yet? When's it coming? 
So it's coming out um, uh, end of this year. Uh, so okay. so far, we have been focusing on effectively building out our FX offering, and uh, this is actually working rather great. So I think people underestimate like how big is the volume, what goes through the FX, and how big is the opportunity there. My background is from Wise, and my co-founder we together worked in Wise, and we saw this opportunity to actually have a really low-cost solution there on a premium product. Um, it's going to be in a couple of coffees, uh, kind of cost-wise, in a one month. And uh, we effectively try to build a different kind of models for, for people who have a different needs. So maybe you're a more experienced person, you want to have more detailed view into your world. If you're a less experienced person, you maybe want to, don't want to understand all the kind of PE ratios. You just want to have recurring payments into some fund and that's it. I, I like that you're talking to me in the currency of coffees in terms of cost, which, <laughs> <laughs> which works in my mind. I can tell you, but I don't show you my coffee because it's enormous and it's branded. Um, I guess a couple of <laughs> the things with um, Robinhood that I would compare with is, I think we've discussed the business model and what you're looking at. Can I just rule out using any form of payment for order flow, which is what got quite exciting during the GameStop period where there was questions over platforms like Robinhood being given money by market makers in order to take all their trades and execute them. This is not something you use. That's correct, isn't it? So payment for order flow really doesn't make sense in Europe. So in Europe, yeah. it's uh, in mostly legal. Uh, there are like one or two countries who are like thinking it's a normal thing to do, uh, but it's like not the like, prominent way how to make money in Europe in any way. So in Europe, I think there's like multiple other ways that like, Europe differs from the business model wise and also like how the countries work and so on. So there's a lot of nuance around the business model. Uh, but yeah, like we see like uh, FX being actually one of the uh, really cool ways where European people can get the benefit of uh, investing in a kind of really, really low cost. What about crypto, Martin? So everybody's super excited about crypto. Um, what we see is that we started from instruments that are the most prominent people's portfolios and then going down to the uh, instruments that are less prominent. So what we see right now is that effectively large portion of people have crypto in their portfolio, but their assets under management is tiny. So people are not big, making big bets there in Europe. So I think it's actually coming. Europe, again, lags behind the US. So at that point, we are coming with crypto as well. Okay. And what about education, Martin? Because interesting, on the show yesterday, we were talking about these meme stocks again, and momentum in a stock can be very different from the fundamental analysis. Where do you see your responsibility sort of begins and ends to educate people, not just about trading, but things like stop losses, for example, and perhaps reading a little bit about what they're investing, as well as just seeing something going up, perhaps, and buying it, or down and selling it? I think this problem is not solved in the world in anywhere at the moment. So mm -hmm. the education is, seems to be kind of the throwaway. Somebody has a blog post somewhere. It's like, this is how you should invest. And like, my argument is that nobody really reads that. So I, I think education has to come to, to be baked into the application itself. So you would understand your risk tolerance, the kind of um, market risk, the portfolio risk. And if you start like looking into it, like, hey, like if, if you're distributing your uh, investments like rather widely and you have dollar cost averaging, an app could tell you that and help you to understand these kind of concepts what are actually rather healthy when you're doing your investment journey. So what we try to do is to try to bake as much of the data and education into the app as possible. So we have been starting for uh, building a kind of data product for people who are a little bit more experienced. So giving the uh, fundamentals data, we're giving uh, revenue data, uh, cash flow data, also analysis ratings and news and and like all these kind of increments, like where people could make a better decisions. Hmm.
come back and talk to us, please. I want to track your progress on this. It's going to be fascinating to see. Martin Sock, CEO of Lightyear. Thank you so much for that. Oh, and I was going to make a joke about how many light years and why you chose the name Lightyear, but we'll save that for the next conversation. There are a lot of light years out there and they're not all trading apps. Will we convene, Martin? Thank you. I'm being told off. It happens a lot. Thank you. Okay, after the break, first move is heading to the movies for a love letter about finding oneself helped by the house of Dior and couture fashion. I speak with the director, the writer-director of Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Lots of green on the screen in early Wall Street trade today. The major averages building on Wednesday's strong gains with the Nasdaq pushing further into bull market territory. A softer than expected read on U.S. producer prices. The second encouraging inflation data point this week is certainly helping sentiment. Prices at the factory gate, which is the explanation for that PPI number, rising at a less than 10 percent annual rate last month. That is, in fact, the first read below 11 percent in five months. In fact, that reading actually fell a half a percent month over month, helped by an easing of energy prices, the first monthly drop in two years. The big question, will the week's relative inflation exultation allow the Fed to ease up on aggressive rate hikes? Fed officials speaking yesterday were still hawkish about the path ahead. These are still incredibly high numbers and they have a lot of work to do. Now, helping the Dow push higher today, shares of Disney rallying 9% strength in streaming, as well as strong theme park attendance and cruise ship demand, show the consumer is still willing to spend. The numbers easing at least some of the investor concerns that have driven shares down 20% year-to-date. Now, from a Disney stock rally to a box office darling among the big summer blockbusters based on Paul Gallico's popular 1958 novel, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris has found its footing among fighter jets and Marvel superheroes. The movie tells the story of a British cleaning lady whose dream to own a couture Christian Dior gown takes her all the way to Paris. In a post-pandemic entertainment world, the feel-good fashion film is helping bring people back to the theatres, scoring high with both critics and audiences. Since its U.S. debut, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris has brought in $8.2 million at the domestic box office and it will open in the United Kingdom on September 30th. And joining us now is the writer-director of Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, Anthony Fabian. Tony, fantastic to have you on the show. I should be honest with our audience. I should be honest with our audience. I absolutely love the movie. So um, that's the caveat as we as we have this discussion. Um, but, well, you know, when I look at the, the feedback that I see online, your Rotten Tomato score is off the charts. You're paid streaming now. You're in the top 10. Spider-Man, Minions, Jurassic World is the competition there. Um, why is this so successful? Thanks, Julia. I think the truth is we're occupying a unique space in releases right now. As you mentioned, there are all these big blockbusters and Marvel movies, and ours is a modestly budgeted, character-driven drama. So for people who are looking for an alternative to that kind of major studio fare, there's really not much else to to go to. And um, I think you're not alone in, in having fallen in love with Mrs. Harris and, and her quest for this Dior dress. I mean, it takes her on a, a serious journey. It's set in the, the 1950s. She's someone very lovable. The character development, um, I think, is also key to this, at least for how it resonated for me at a time in the world where 
there's a lot of bad things going on. Um, and it made me laugh. I think that was the other thing. The script writing on this was, I think, so critical. And from what you've told me, years in the making. And this is important, too, to, I think, to a successful movie. Absolutely. I've always felt that it's impossible to make a good film from a bad script. And I feel that not enough time and resources are put to the screenplay. There's such a mad rush to actually make things that uh, perhaps things go into production a bit too soon. But uh, the more time you have to burnish your material and to find the layers and the nuances, the more successful you're likely to be and the more likely you are to attract the kind of cast that we managed to attract for Mrs. Harris. Yeah, I mean, the cast is brilliant too. But for me, the dress, and the dress was absolutely fabulous, let's be clear, but um, it was sort of a metaphor <laughs> for seeing something that you want and, and going after it, but in an incredibly kind way. And she she had sort of devastation. She's a widow. She lost her husband in the war. And through the pursuit of this dress made friendships. And I think her heart opened as well. I don't want to spoil it for the for the people at home. But through that funny and very sad events happen as well. Um, for me, you created something beautiful, but it's it's not this grand uh, sort of violent, explosive epic. It's nor is it sort of shoestring movie, indie movies that we've come to recognise. It's, it's sort of in the middle. And I wonder... At a time post-COVID, particularly for the demographics that you're attracting, and I've seen who's going to watch this, and I believe 44% of attendees so far over 55, 71% female, says something about me. Um, I'm wondering whether <laughs> they're less likely to go back to the cinema post-COVID. And again, it goes to the point of being able to create movies, finance movies like this at this point in time and get them in the cinema. Absolutely. I think this is the most endangered species of all the cinematic genres. Um, and there was previously a very strong cinema-going audience in, amongst the more mature and female audience that, that this film is clearly destined for. But they, in a way, have been the slowest to return to the cinema, perhaps the most fearful about catching COVID, um, perhaps the most out of the habit of going to the cinema. And I think it's been a little bit of a vicious cycle because the cinemas have not been offering this audience anything particularly for them to see. So if all you have in front of you is Top Gun and a Marvel movie, you're, you're not likely to go and check out what's going on. You're not likely to see the trailer for the kind of film that you want to see. And the one exception perhaps earlier this year would be Downton Abbey which was in a way a litmus test for a similar audience. And I think Downton began to draw this audience out. And we've ridden, we have, we have ridden on those coattails, um, the Downton coattails, because um, Mrs. Harris was certainly trailered with Downton. So it was a, an effective way of getting people back into the habit of going to the cinema and a very important habit to get into, I think. So the onus perhaps is on us as, as consumers. If we want some diversity, we have to go back to the cinemas because it's not like movies like this aren't being made. They're just going direct to streaming, not even paid streaming, which is what I was talking about with you guys or, or to the cinema. So the onus perhaps is on us to search out for more independent movies like this and, and go and watch them and, and provide support. To your point, it's not it's not yeah. about perhaps begging for viewers. It's about a bit of diversity, because like I said, this was a bringer of joy in many ways. I think the more films are out there like this that people can go and see, the more they will go and see them. And, and mm. to some degree, Mrs. Harris has been a canary 
in um, in the mine. Uh, if she's done well, which she has, it will perhaps encourage studios to make more of this kind of film. You know, it's not often that I go to the cinema and I sort of laugh, cry, groan, at one point hide my eyes because she tries to raise money and she goes to watch a dog race and she bids, uh, she bets on a on a dog, um, just based on the name, so not based on science, which I may have done once or twice before with with, with horses. And it's called Haute Couture, but her accent's obviously <laughs> better than mine, and I, I literally was crying. And then I find myself <laughs> sitting a few seats away from the director, so that's actually, um, that's how we met. I think some of our viewers will have seen some of the actors and actresses in this, and seen them in other guises. Um, Jason Isaacs, for example, from, from the Harry Potter franchise, your main actor actress is phenomenal. Uh, an appearance there as well from some others may have seen on uh, a Netflix drama, Emily, um, in Paris. Um, you're a great spotter of talent, I think, too, and that matters. You've mentioned that. I was very lucky in this instance that once we had our key cast, Leslie Manville and Isabelle Huppert, I could spread the net a little bit more widely and perhaps make some discoveries. And we have some really lovely younger characters in the film. Uh, such as the accountant at Dior um, and the top model at Dior and the aspiring actress who plays a very pivotal role in the story. And I was able to really cast the absolutely perfect people for those parts who were not necessarily big names. Yes. And Lucas Bravo, we just also were so lucky because I cast him before Emily in Paris uh, ever hit the screens. And by the time we started filming, there was a very funny incident. Isabelle Huppert was collected from the airport. And in the taxi, the driver said, oh, you're very lucky. You're going to be working with this amazing actor, Lucas Bravo. And, you know, he was speaking to the Meryl <laughs> Streep of France. Um, so that was, that was hilarious because really overnight, Lucas had over a million followers on Instagram. And we had a star, which we didn't even know we had cast um, pr prior to starting production. Yeah, and there's a message in there too about life for some of these talent after COVID as well and getting them back to work and spotted and into great movies like this. Um, good luck for the UK the UK launch. Thank um, you. We continue to watch your progress. Thank you. Anthony Fabian there. Thank director. you so much. Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. Great to chat to you and we'll speak soon. Thank you. Okay, so to come. Not so smooth sailing for SpaceX subsidies. US regulators are sidelining Starlink's cash We'll have more after the break. Welcome back to First Move. Trouble in the skies for Elon Musk's SpaceX. Four, three, two, one, ignition. And lift up of Starlink. Go Falcon, go Starlink. Wow. I'll never get tired of that. Just two days ago, it launched another Falcon 9 rocket with 52 more Starlink internet satellites into orbit. Starlink is SpaceX's internet mega constellation, beaming broadband service to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. But now U.S. regulators have denied the company nearly $900 million worth of subsidies, claiming the service is, quote, still developing technology. Claire Sebastian joins us now. I remember some skepticism, Claire, and welcome when they were initially awarded this because people said it was too experimental, it had not been proven. What was the decision here? Why have they chosen to, to pull back these subsidies now? 
Yeah, Julia, the original uh, decision to, to grant those subsidies in December of 2020 in the final weeks of the Trump administration, it mm. should be noted, came really just about 18 months after Starlink had launched its first satellite. So now we're about a year and a half after that. There's a new administration, and they have reversed that decision for a couple of reasons. One, they're saying that the company they feel is not yet ready. The technology is still developing. This is what FCC uh, Chair Jessica Rosenworcel had to say in the statement. She said, we must put scarce universal service dollars to their best possible use as we move into a digital future that demands ever more powerful and faster networks. We cannot afford, she says, to subsidize ventures that are not delivering the promised speeds or are not likely to meet program requirements. So pretty damning statement there uh, when it comes to how far uh, SpaceX's Starlink has, has, has allegedly come during this time. She's also apparently worried that the speeds are not fast enough, that some of the broadband speeds might have been slowing in recent months. And they also noted cost, that, that customers have to pay up front up to $600 for a satellite in order to even access uh, Starlink's internet, something that might be prohibitive, of course, uh, for rural areas. So those are their concerns. But of course, this is pretty bad for, for SpaceX's Starlinks. It, it markets itself really for this purpose, for reaching rural or remote areas. Uh, the fact that it comes from a sort of constellation of satellites rather than fiber broadband, which is more, the more traditional method nowadays. So this really casts some doubt on that use case, at least for the moment, while it develops and I think as well, Julia, cast some doubt on, on Elon Musk's ability to, to win trust for something that is still developing, something that, of course, we know has been a key tenet of his career so far. Yeah, trust, I think perhaps is a critical word here. I mean, they've, I think they've raised more money than this through routine fundraising this year, and it's, what, a $125 billion company. So one could question whether he needs it. But, yes, have to bring those prices down in order to make it um, more accessible. Claire, great to have you with us. Thank you. Claire Sebastian there. Now, finally, the age-old question, why did the chicken cross the road may have some competition? Why did the turkey break into an apartment? Police officers in Wisconsin responded to a call about a disturbance at an unoccupied apartment. Somehow a turkey had crashed through the second-story window. It's a turkey, not a tiger. <laughs> yeah, it's going to scratch. Have you, seen, have you hunted turkey before? To be honest, I don't really know what to do afterwards, though. It's no, going to scratch. The entire turkey trot was caught on body cams after a lot of flapping and chase, the bir chase of the birds around the, with a net. The feathered perpetrator was finally caught. So they were flapping on all sides there. I think she was released just outside the apartment building. So she was released. That's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.